I think why real estate is and will continue to be such fertile ground for this is they know exactly who to target on the front end. Title and escrow professionals manage large sums of money during the real estate transaction, making them prime targets for cyber criminals. Training and education within the title industry is working to prevent wire fraud. According to a recent study from the American Land Title Association, wire fraud schemes succeeded only around 8% of the time. But fraudsters are constantly changing tactics to get to the cash. And many parties within the real estate transaction, like buyers and sellers, are left vulnerable. Tom Cronkite of Certified and Sun Title knows firsthand about wire fraud and is dedicated to providing better solutions to protect the real estate transaction. I spoke with him about the threat of wire fraud, how title agents can better educate buyers and sellers, the steps to recovering funds, and why title agents need to consider cyber liability coverage in their E&O policies. I'm Amanda Farrell, and this is Title Talks. I am so excited that you are here with us all today. I want to thank Tom for your time and for being here with us as well. I really appreciate it, Tom. No, Amanda, thank you. Always always happy to, to support not only your cause, but the industry as, as a whole. So glad to be here. I'd really love it if you would just go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are, your background in the title industry. Yeah, uh, I'm as mentioned, uh, my, my name is Tom. I'm a uh, attorney by trade turned large title agency owner here in the state of Michigan. Sun Title uh, is the company we formed back in 2005, along with my best friend and business partner, Lawrence Stutler. Uh, the, the, the path towards uh, wire fraud prevention, uh, we were, we were kind of cast upon when we had a wire fraud incident back in uh, 2015. So we ended up losing almost $200,000 to, uh, to a wire fraud syndicate, not knowing at the time, one of the largest operating in North America called the Nigerian Black Axe. And it was, it was a simple fraud looking back. It was a cashier check that came in we had some identities that were that were hacked and spoofed, and we ultimately wired, you know, $180,000 off of what we thought was a good cashier's check, and the cashier's check bounced. So that that journey led us on two years of civil litigation. Closing the the civil litigation out, uh, we ended up getting called by the Department of Justice as lead witnesses in what was the the 33rd conviction to disassemble the syndicate that was operating in North America. So. Uh, it's been an interesting journey for us, a very intense experience, uh, but we we made it a, a conscious and intentional decision based on our learnings to say that if this continues, it, it's going to have a, a significant negative impact on the real estate industry as a whole, but also on title companies like ours that had the unfortunate experience of going through it. So from that was the making of of what we now have in market called Certified, which is a a technology that not only prevents wire fraud, but protects through insurance and recovery services, the, the transfer of funds between parties. And it's been, uh, it's been my privilege and, uh, and one, of the, one of the best, I think, professional experiences of my life to, to create, to take something like that and create something that does, uh, that does actually protect folks from this, uh, from this issue. So, and, and I'm, I applaud PropLogic and what you're doing here because the more awareness that we can have around this issue, I think the better we all are from a positioning standpoint to identify and prevent this from happening, not only to ourselves in the title space, but also to the consumers that are trusting us to, to protect them. So we talk about like real estate and wire fraud. 
over 90% of them start with a phishing email that has been curated and then sent to intentionally sent to somebody that's active in a real estate transaction. So when you think about it at a high level, real estate is very unique in the sense that all active transactions, I mean, we were, you were talking about, hey, I'm looking for a house and you know the inventory is tight. Well, you know the houses that are actively listed and who those listing agents are, right? You have access to that at your fingertips. So the fraudster has the same amount of information and there's an open public record system. So you can identify the property owner of each and every property parcel in the United States. So I think why real estate is and will continue to be such fertile ground for this is they know exactly who to target on the front end. And then it just gives them that, that runway to, to get inside someone's email account. And then ultimately uh, the, the compromise takes place once they learn that the money's about to transfer. So it, it actually, it's a disproportionate amount, like 90% of the time starts with phishing. So yeah, and my first question is really about, you know, why cyber criminals uh, are targeting the the title industry and the real estate transaction. The American Land Title Association recently surveyed agents and found that cyber criminals try to trick employees uh, to wire funds to a fraudulent account in about a third of all transactions. So are you surprised by how common this is? And, you know, what are some of the reasons why it continues to grow as such a big threat to the real estate industry? Yeah, so so let me give you a few more stats and then and then maybe I can color up the reason why. Uh, so a, a few more stats, you're exactly right. The, the Alta put out the, the annual cybercrime survey report. One in three transactions were targets. That could be a buyer, that could be a title company, somebody approached, right, to wire funds to a fraudulent account. 6,000 businesses a month are targeted for uh, some sort of business email compromise scam. And at, and the last year, the, the Internet Crime Complaint Center of the FBI received a report every 43 seconds of cybercrime taking place just in the U.S. So you layer onto that that the average loss over the last five years has gone up about 220 percent. And if if just what we saw last year continues to grow at a 10% rate each year until 2025, we're going to go from 1.9 to $6.9 billion of loss. So there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, going back to my earlier points, real estate is the largest transaction that consumers uh, will engage in in their lifetime. They typically only engage in it a few times in their lifetime. So they have what I call a lack of muscle memory when they're in and out of a transaction cycle on average every seven to 10 years, depending on where they are in life. So we have to approach this that every transaction is new, all the information is new. And I would say that despite digital communication and technology, they're still heavily reliant upon their real estate agent, their lender, and the title settlement provider to guide them through the process. And I think that reliance disarms them if they're not educated, and we'll get into this, they're not properly educated and notified about the risk, that how would I know it wasn't my real estate agent or my closing attorney or whoever that has all the information, it looks like the same email string, and all they're saying is just send me the money that I've already agreed to send, and they don't know what to distinguish like right from wrong. So 
I think a couple of things, high transaction value, very low barrier to entry for these cyber, cyber criminal enterprises. You've got multiple parties in a transaction that you can spoof. We've seen transactions where the fraudster on the same exact file tried to, tried to divert the buyer cash to close, was unsuccessful, but was able to convince the title company to send the mortgage payoff to a fraudulent account, same file. Right. So, so when they're embedded, they're just ruthless. So again, transparent information, high transaction values, a lot of, a lot of parties in the mix. And until we do a better job as an industry, you have especially a consumer group or maybe an employee base that just doesn't know what to look for. These scams are becoming more and more sophisticated by the month, not by the year. Yeah, the convenience of technology is definitely a bit of a catch-22 there where it makes it easier for you to shop and find a home that you really love and want to buy. But then, like you said, it also makes it a lot easier for fraudsters to get into the real estate transaction and figure out which parties are involved. And so on that note, is there someone within the real estate transaction, one of those parties that is more at risk of falling victim to wire fraud than any other? I want to be careful when I answer this, but I will answer it. Um, we're all at risk, and I think we we all share in this risk profile. What we have seen, and this is backed up by the data, is typically the real estate agents, uh, maybe the solo attorney practitioner or the mortgage broker, not necessarily the the lenders that are part of a, a broader financing ecosystem like a bank, but the a lot of times it's the, unfortunately the real estate agent who is maybe associated with a major brand in market, but they're operating under a team. So I'm, I'm team Tom at gmail or yahoo.com because I want portability of my brand between brokerages should I choose to switch, right? And I, and I think that's a, that's a major driver. And, I, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it, it creates vulnerability because in a lot of senses, the real estate community, if they're, if they're not, Real estate professionals, if they're not receiving the money and the title companies taking EMV and title companies taking cash to close, well, what do I have to worry about relative to wire fraud then? What you have to worry about is that if your account is compromised, you're the gateway to where the frauds start. Because from that compromised account, they can see buyer or seller information. They can cross to the other side and see the other agent, whether listing or selling. They can see the lender information. And more importantly, they start to see and close in on the final numbers leading up to closing. So I think, like I say, more often than not, the, the fraudsters will focus on that as the entry point. But what's interesting is, let's say the real estate agent's email is compromised, they're not the target of the fraud. The target of the fraud is either the title company for seller net proceeds or mortgage payoff disbursements, or the buyer for a large EMD or cash to close wire. So they're just they're just simply the, the mechanism to harvest information to then impersonate somebody and trick someone else into a, into a funds uh, transfer that ends up being fraudulent. I mean, look, there's 20, roughly 20,000 independent title agencies across the country. And the fragmentation of that in, is, is something that again is, is a vulnerability, I think, in the, in the market. Uh, especially with split closings. I'm in split closing markets in our title company, and it's just very challenging just to 
to make sure everybody is safe and the information that's exchanging is, you know, can be trusted. So are there some ways to prevent malicious emails from reaching your inbox or your employees inbox? Yeah, I think let's talk email for a second. So I recently was was with the Secret Service, actually live in Grand Rapids last week. And we were addressing a very large group of agents and attorneys. And email security is just a huge thing internally and for your referral partners. And what fraudsters do when they gain access to an email is they don't actually read the emails first. They go into the settings and they do a few things so that even if you change your password a few minutes later, they'll remain inside the email account. So the first thing they do is they create auto forwarding rules so that anything coming into the account, maybe from a group of people, they can even do like keyword logging that they have access to, to have those emails forwarded, right? The other thing they do is they auto delete those forwarded messages. So if you don't know where to look and what rules can be set in, you know, Office 365 or you know Gmail or Yahoo or whatever you're using, uh, you could have email accounts that are compromised as we speak, emails being forwarded, but there's no trace of that forward. The third thing they do is they actually remove, if the fraud's active, they'll block certain email addresses from actually coming into an email address so that you know, the real estate agent of the title company doesn't even see like the proper emails that would be coming in to alert them. And then the fraudster redirects those communications through uh, spoofed accounts. So email security is number one, multi-factor authentication turned on, checking all the rules to make sure that no funny business is taking place and the email actually hasn't been hijacked and then using complex passwords to administer the, the login access. From there, so let's say my account's secure, because I say it doesn't make any sense. If your account's not secure, what I want, what I'm about to say right now doesn't matter, right? Because the account has been completely taken over. If the account's secure, there are third-party tools that can at scale prevent malicious emails from even entering the inbox. So companies like Mimecast, um, I believe it's Proofpoint, Agari, uh, Mimecast being one of the leading ones, we subscribe to that because it's kind of a consortium database. And what it does is before the email hits our inboxes uh, for any of our companies, it goes through a Mimecast filter and they can identify malicious, we, they, they, they scrape attachments, they scrape malicious links. If you know Amazon saw a malicious link through Mimecast 30 seconds ago, and then it came through our system, it would already be flagged. So in the same thing, if, if our system saw something, it would alert the entire ecosystem nationally uh, that that's a, that's a flagged email. So I think the email monitoring tools and those types of services are, are just key because you're, you have to set up, for, for those of you that are owners and managers, you have to set up your cybersecurity and your email security for the busiest day of the month. So, Next week, Trid Tuesday. Next week, Friday, which I think is the first or second. Like those are the days that you have to be the best version from a security perspective of yourself so that when your folks are overheating or something sliding sideways, they don't inadvertently click on something in haste because they're just working under compressed timeframes. We actually, we run monitoring tools and we can see that fraudsters in, in our title company, and we get 
I don't know, 250,000 emails a month, maybe 300,000 emails a month. You can see where they approach us month end is like 10 times higher the number of attacks than the first week of the month. And even on the month end week, Tuesday and Thursday leading up to those transfers in and out are the most active days. So they even know like when to hold back and hit hard and pedal down on their scams versus just running it in almost like a sequential log through the month. Yeah, that's crazy that they even have observed, you know, they're aware that title agents and real estate law firms are busy at the end of the month. You know, we always hear that at PropLogix. We, we are aware that our clients are super busy at the end of the month. So I, I guess I'm not really surprised when you say it, uh, but it is still uh, pretty shocking nonetheless. Well, um, I say that because a lot of people think that it's just like, well, they got lucky or it's a it's a coincidence or it's just no it, it's it's a strategy it's intentional i mean they put a ton of resources before they launch these fraud scams and they're super targeted so it, it just shows their domain expertise and their understanding of just you know our life cycle month to month as an industry and so in addition to you know these email these measures that you can take to protect email, what are some measures when you are training your employees uh, in terms of internal process to stop wire fraud? What are some of the most important tips that you can give to title agents to train employees to spot this kind of activity? Yeah, I, I think the employee training, first and foremost, is you just be honest and transparent that this is a threat. The threat can come in at a moment's notice and every wire is at risk. I mean, you just, you have to have teams that are in any way approaching or, you know, setting up or releasing wires that they are the last line of defense. They have to live with a, a bit of like paranoia or anxiety around this to make sure that they're on their game each and every time. So being able to show them examples. So we do active phishing testing. And what that means is we'll hire a third party. They'll create very well drafted phishing emails. Sometimes it look like it's coming from like around an attorney staff, you know, an employee staff meeting. We did one around employee benefits. I mean, things that, boy, we're, we're gonna click on that or what's the new policy now that Michigan lifted the mask requirements yesterday? Like they'll click on that. And then we monitor how much information they're willing to give us during that exercise. And then Without flogging people, you just use that as training moments. Is there one department versus another that's more susceptible? Is there an age group of one versus another that's more susceptible? You have to start thinking more clinically that who is more apt to click and give up information. And some of that is departmental. Some of that is just generic. Some of that could be around generational lines of how people view security online, right? I'm a huge skeptic of anything online. And, but there's others that aren't. They're like, sure, take my social number. I got nothing to lose. Give me the free cup of coffee, right? <laughs> um, and I think the other thing is creating a culture internally where people know what to do if they see something suspicious and if they wanna raise their hand and get a second look without any, any threat of of retribution against that, meaning yes, it might delay a wire, you might have to eat another day of uh, per diem on a file or whatever it happens to be. You may have to refund a closing fee every now and then. I can just tell you that that pales in comparison 
to the exhaust of time and energy and cost of losing a substantial wire and trying to get it back or, or being drug into litigation because somebody wasn't properly brought up to speed and lost their life savings. We provide all certified customers with a, um, a guide, if you will, a funds transfer guide. And it's meant to, to either provide a, a, a proper process or challenge current processes in light of the shift that COVID has made to electronic payments. So one of the things, I, one point I was gonna mention earlier is COVID has compressed the time frame for adoption for electronic payments, either ACH or wire. I mean, you just, the, the habit of going to the bank and doing things in real time was disrupted over the last 12 to 18 months in particular. And we have to really look at our current processes and procedures for all incoming and outgoing funds, not just wire and ACH, to make sure that it's not providing unnecessary exposure uh, to the company or to the customer. I'm curious about, you know, some of those other, you know, pieces of technology other than email. Is there anything else that people can be doing, something that they can add to their workflow to better protect their their process of when they're doing payoffs or whatnot? Yeah, I mean, we we talk about it between you know, bringing together in harmony people, process, and technology, and in, in not one being more important than the other. It, it takes all three. So pretty evenly dispersed that, hey, my, my people keep us safe. Well, the people that are saying that probably have really well-defined policies and procedures so the people know exactly what to do and they've been trained up to identify right from wrong, right? Well, processes, well, I've gone through and I've did, done the work and my processes are current and they, and they do represent like current best practice around this. Well, great, right? That enables your people. Technology plays an enablement role. If you, if you have a culture where you're enabling people through good process and communication, technology can kind of level up and bring you even to a higher, a higher state. For example, you know, having positive pay turned on on your banking systems so that when checks are presented or funds are released uh, and they're being presented through that there's visibility into you know check for that's typically a check fraud thing check fraud dwarfs wire fraud on an annual basis we don't talk much about that but it, it's a much larger issue you know having daily reconciliation where you know softwares like rhino and and, and others are, are just are huge where they programmatically tick and tie what was sent up and released in positive pay to what's clearing and then just just bubbling out exceptions in real time on a daily basis or intraday you know platforms like certified where we can validate identity ensure the the, the bank information that is exchanged can be trusted and is insured your treasury portals and the settings on that you you talk about mortgage payoffs the solution to mortgage payoffs we're, we're working on on one very intentionally right now but Use your banking platform to codify treasury templates so that when your team goes in and receives the payoff from whoever it is, NationStar, Mr. Cooper, or Wells, that you're validating that against a, a pre-known set of instructions that you know you've, you've transferred funds safely to in the past, and then store that as a treasury template in your banking system, not on your server. And you create almost like a dual or or tri-authentication layer 
or mortgage payoffs, or you have a developer that you do a bunch of work with, well, that, that's a, if it's a recurring relationship or likely to be, that's where you can use like safe data storage to go back and create your own kind of like best of set of instructions. We have a policy that if, if the credentials are not within uh, our banking platform, uh, we have to run everything through certified uh, at our title company. And then we will safely store that and we go back to the, those banking credentials, especially for mortgage payoffs before we move forward. So, and you say, well, I don't, I've never done that with Treasury. Well then have somebody go back through the last like six months of closings, pull the payoffs, separate them out into who were the primary lenders. You'd be surprised. You probably have 20 lenders that represent 80% of your payoffs. I'd be surprised if you didn't. We'll start there and then work with your bank, get that information securely stored, and then create a policy that you only go back to that, and then have a, a very rigorous policy for onboarding new bank credentials and validating those before, you know, before the funds are sent. That's a great tip. Um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that side of, you know, saving the data with that, that side of the transaction with your lenders as such a key important role within stopping wire fraud. And I'd like to talk a little bit too about education of buyers and sellers. We know that you mentioned earlier how they are, you know, just trying to get through the transaction. There's a lot of information coming at them through various points of the transaction. I was having a conversation with the other day where, you know, I was asking them if they even remember the title company that they closed with. And a lot of people can't remember, you know, the title company or the title agent that was a part of their closing. And so how can title agents be a part of the discussion early on around wire fraud? And should they maybe also lean into their partners with their, their real estate agents to really help educate buyers as early on as possible? No, I think it's a it's a great question. Let, let's just stick with buyers and then I can pivot the seller. The seller is easier. The buyers are the single single handedly the biggest challenge for incoming wires right now. I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it it's education and it's engagement on all parties. For us, what we did, which is why we held the event in, in Grand Rapids last week, because we're just seeing this inflection point against buyers right now, is that we have to bring in our referral partners to the conversation, even if they're not touching funds to begin with. So the question I like to pose is, if the buyer receives wiring instructions for the first time in the transaction, would you like that to come from the fraudster or from you first? They say, well, they're never gonna wire, Tom. The deal was they were only gonna bring a check. That's not the question. The buyer receives wiring instructions in an email that look believable. Do you want it to come from the fraudster first or from you first? And it's a simple answer to that. The solve though, is that we have to lean into our referral partners and we have to make sure they're providing us with the buyer information at the time that they're requesting us to start, you know, you know, examining the records and preparing the commitment. We can't wait anymore until we get into preliminary numbers or starting to schedule the closing to identify who in the world is actually being represented here. I know it's, John Doe agent, and he's my referral source, but who are we actually representing from a consumer side? And that's a pattern break that needs to take place across the country. 
And when you explain to them in very clear terms, Alta just released another case on this, that if there's a wire fraud that takes place with a buyer, we're all getting sued. That, that is not a discussion point, that is just truth. And because the numbers are too small to litigate, meaning you really can't litigate in this country for anything below $200,000, just the legal fees don't make sense, we're all gonna be writing a check. And we're either writing a personal check or our insurance carrier is writing a check, and then we're gonna write a check for the next 10 years as our premiums go up. But everybody, we're all writing a check. So the behavioral change is to get that information and see if the real estate agent would engage at the time that the agency is formed. So at the time of listing appointment or the time the buyer agency is formed, could we provide some collateral that they could acknowledge that, hey, you could be approached at any time and here's what to watch out for and don't trust anything except this. And the except this is having very clear communication around what, what are the rules here for me to get money safely to you? And if you're not having that conversation in advance of the transaction, you're just simply leaving your buyer exposed. There's no clearer way to say it. The, the hard stop on this is you simp the industry simply cannot share preliminary or final numbers in advance of closing without sharing wiring instructions to the buyer with a, with a proper warning in advance. We've seen time and time again between COVID or busy month end, or I can't find enough people or whatever it is, I could I mean, just example after example, where the buyer is convinced that they need to wire funds right now, or they're gonna lose the house. And Amanda, the, the, the kicker of all this is, the, the stress on buyers right now in this current market's at an all time high. I mean, they're totally fatigued and burned out by the time they get to closing, not because anybody, anybody did anything wrong, it's just, hey, I had to offer on six different houses, I'm still trying to figure out why I had to offer 15% above ask or 20% above ask, and I'll do anything right, right now to close on this thing. And it just lowers that guard unless somebody, and I think, I think the title company can be the hero in this story, comes alongside of them and says, look, I know it's stressful, but we got you. We got you on this. And it's not gonna happen on this file. It's gonna happen somewhere else. But we're taking the proactive stance to make sure that all of our customers are safe and secure and educated on this. So I can't say passionately enough because we just finished our 52nd recovery of the year. And most of those are with buyers. These are fun, active funds recoveries. Tens of millions of dollars returned back to buyers and title companies on a service that we launched. And the, the stories are absolutely heartbreaking. The, the impact that this has on people, I mean, this is a life event. We've, we've had to walk people back from you know, thinking about harming themselves because life insurance would put the, you know, the family back into a position because they lost the $250,000 of cash to close. And the other thing is more cash buyers because it's more competitive to get the house accepted, right? Your offer is more, more competitive, it's a cash offer, so you have larger swings of money. But yeah, I could go on and on on this topic, but have to engage the buyers early, even if they don't anticipate and you're not anticipating requesting that a wire be transferred uh, and that a cashier's check can be accepted. On sellers, it's easier because you know we have, the, the title industry has the responsibility for safe disbursement. So you have to one, make sure you know who it is you're talking to, who you're communicating with, and that the information can be trusted. And if you're receiving 
bank credentials from a third party, the split title company, um, the, the agent on the other side of the deal, the law firm, if you're not going to the source of who owns that account, then you're exposing yourself and ultimately the other transaction participants to a fraudulent transfer. Yeah, some of the stories I've read, uh, particularly around buyers losing their down payments or their entire cash offers is really tragic and really awful. So anything you can do to prevent that um, is definitely well worth the effort. I think for a lot of people, regardless of what industry they're in, when it comes to cybersecurity, they probably set up the process, they set up the technology, and then they think that they're good to go. But as you talked about earlier, you know, cyber criminals are constantly tweaking their process and they are always looking to, you know, separate you from your cash, whoever it might be in the party that in, in the transaction. And so are there any new emerging tactics that you've seen in response to the changes that title agents are making or real estate agents are making? And how can people stay one step ahead of the cyber criminals? Yeah, no, it, it, it's a great question. And just to, just to dispel the notion that wire fraud is generated from these lone wolf hackers that are sitting in basements on bean mag, bags, you know, drinking Mountain Dew and eating Doritos. It's just, it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar full-on business enterprise that's operating out of, I don't even know how many countries right now, where they have a full hierarchy. They've got the CEO, they've got compliance teams and IT and operation and recruiting and finance. They have a mid-layer where you've got admins and hackers and managers and recruiters and launderers. I mean, it is full-on infrastructure with one thing in their workflow, one thing. And that is to divert money into accounts that they either have control over or they're manipulating the person that has control over that account so that they can get their hands on it. So the we just have to dispel the notion and it isn't going away. That's the other thing. It's going to continue to increase. So uh, what we can do about it, uh, what I have seen is companies, there's two types. We can have a reactive approach or we can have a proactive approach to anything cyber related. This is network security, data security, funds transfer security, uh, the way that we're gathering and what information we're, we're storing and for how long. I mean, those types of things are all things that need to be part of the equation. But what I've seen is an investment in uh, technology, in the hardware and software that helps enable a more secure infrastructure and state the, the training of people, I mean, I'm answering this by saying it's not one thing, right? It, it's the training of people, uh, both from, uh, are you following process and procedure, right? Because there's, there's, there's like process and procedure and then there are norms. Well, the process and procedure says this, that, this thing, but if I actually audit them, they've created their own sense of like what they wanna do and those are company norms. You have to make sure that the norms in the company align with the process and procedure that creates a more secure state. Partners are educated around the issue and what to watch out for because they can enable the information exchange that needs to take place so that people are engaged around this issue of wire fraud in particular. And then you have to have a you have to have a plan. You have to have an incident response plan should something go wrong. If there was a data breach if the network was somehow intruded, if ransomware demand shows up unannounced, if there is a wire fraud, like who does what and why? 
And have you created not only that framework, but have you run the drills against it to make sure that you you go from an incredible high stress? I mean, I've been there. I mean, when I learned of my wire fraud, my assistant was giving me the information over the phone and it was so intense. It's like time time moved into frames, right? You just, you can't believe what you're hearing, but you you have to immediately pivot to an action point. So I think it's the companies that are, just leaning in and acknowledging that, yeah, this stinks. I wish I didn't have to manage this. I'm trying to manage HOA and liens. And I mean, we're doing enough and hundred things in the workflow. And now I got this force out here that their only focus is to steal my data or steal all my funds. I mean, that, that just doesn't seem right, but yet here we are. So I think it, it's those companies that subscribe to going on this journey, but they're also winning against it. So, man, those those that that can tangibly show what they're doing and the frauds that are stopped and why this is potentially working at scale, I think creates a, a point of differentiation in the marketplace where they could gain new business or you know be more attractive, especially to your more sophisticated lenders and law firms and potentially real estate brokerages where information and cybersecurity are becoming kind of a cornerstone to some of the relational due diligence that they're doing. Absolutely. Um, and I'd like to talk a little bit more then about the recovery process. According to Alta, a full recovery of, of lost funds only happened in 29% of cases of wire fraud, according to one of their latest reports. Can you describe what happens once the funds are sent to a fraudulent account and why recovery is so difficult? Yeah, they, they've learned. I mean, they, they learn each and every month. This isn't a, like an annual update. They're, they're iterating every single day against how they can not only divert the transfer, but how quickly they can deplete that account and move it or convert it into other forms of currency or assets. So we've seen a few alarming trends. One, um, what used to be 72 or 96 hours you have same day or next day to have a chance of recovery, especially a full recovery. So it's like a it's like a right now issue. Second, and the use of cryptocurrency is becoming much more prevalent. So we had a situation over the last holiday, and we're leading up to another holiday. I'll be putting an advisory out, but um, the last holiday we had for Memorial Day, we got alerted to a to a fraud on on Sunday morning. Uh, a wire that was sent on Friday, not a breakdown of certified. This is this is just they came through our web portal uh, and found us online asking if we could help. And the gentleman had wired out like four o'clock, uh, what, what would have been um, Pacific Coast time. And by Tuesday morning, when the Federal Reserve opened again, the money had already been converted to a crypto wallet. So cryptocurrency is enabling almost a 24-7, 365 movement of money. The other thing we're seeing is the withdrawal of those funds that were transferred to an account, because it always goes to one account typically. They're drawing out cashier's checks and they're converting those cashier's checks into other assets. They might do go to a car dealer and say, hey, I got $250,000 coming in. I want to buy you know, a half a dozen of your cars or 10 of your cars and then those are shipped overseas and then they convert, make money on those cars and they convert those assets to you know, the fiat currency of the, the country that is the destination point. So we're seeing everything in between. 
withdrawals in cash, but cryptocurrency and especially the, the conversion recently of cashier's checks. We're also seeing more money landing in, uh, in Mexico. And that's, a, that's an alarming trend this year uh, because it's, it's very hard to recover funds, unfortunately, that land, uh, that land in that country. So what can a title agent do once they realize a mistake has been made, whether it's they themselves realizing the mistake or they get a call from a buyer or a seller? What, what is the next step usually for them? Yeah, I mean, we, we, put in the, we put in the panel and I encourage all of you to download that and really think about the, the process that would put, your, put yourself and your customer the best chance of recovery. First and foremost, you, you have to identify what happened. Like, wh where, was the, where was the money coming from? Where did the money go? What was the time frame for that? What was the amount? And then you have to alert the banks. You have to alert the, the bank where the money left, so the initiating bank, and then the receiving bank. And typically it's a fraud analyst or a fraud investigator where you would need to contact. And then the next thing you would do is you would file an IC3 complaint form at ic3.gov. They'll ask you all the information. Okay, who are you? What's your bank information? Where'd the money go? What was the amount? You know, was it a spoof? Was it a hack? Like what's going on here? Submit that. And that would initiate a, a ping to the FBI to, to possibly look in and then try to freeze those funds on your behalf. Then you have to circle back and say, okay, what has my bank learned? So did you learn anything? Do you have line of sight? Was the money that was converted or sent to that account, was it converted or sent to other accounts subsequently? Like where, where is the money right now in, in totality because they move it so quickly? You'll have an insurance company, possibly an underwriter, maybe a third party notice requirement. Uh, and then lastly, you may want to initiate law enforcement if it, there's a police report or something that uh, that is generated. I think I think the two things that that I would be doing is I would be making sure I have a contact at the local FBI field office in your jurisdiction that handles cyber or what's called um, uh, cyber enabled crime, complex financial crime. They use they use a few different terms. Making sure you have an asset. In a, in a like face-to-face -face contact that you've met or talked to over the phone at least once, that if I had a wire fraud and I filed an IC3 complaint form, could I send it to you to look into? The second thing is, is making sure that whatever your institution is, do you have direct line of sight into how you would alert that institution to a wire fraud and what to expect? So the, those, are the, those are the two things and have that ready in advance. And then you'd identify somebody in the organization that would be responsible for running that that incident response drill. So I've gotten a couple of questions about cybersecurity insurance. Um, I wrote an article for Alta on the topic, and you know most title companies they have EO insurance, but only about 58% have cyber liability insurance policies. Do you think that in today's market that it's a necessity to have that additional coverage? And what tips would you give to companies who are looking to expand their coverage? Uh, I think a couple things there. One, uh, I, absolutely. I mean, we pay an exorbitant amount of insurance for all of our companies. I think wherever we can allocate risk in this area, uh, we just have to create budget to do that. It's just moving so quickly. 
cyber policy in and of itself typically covers network intrusion, data loss, I mean, that, that type of thing. Where, where, where it gets squishy is around wire fraud because wire fraud is typically social engineering coverage. So you have to make sure you have a social engineering rider and then, okay, I was social engineered, but I wasn't the one that sent the funds, my buyer did. So do you have third-party loss? Do you have what's called cyber crime or fidelity coverage against cyber crime? So what I like to do, and I do this all the time, it drives my carriers nuts, is, is I just send simple if-thens in emails and I make sure that they can respond that I would be covered. Hey, real estate agent was hacked, I was spoofed, buyer wired funds, I get sued, do I have cost of defense? Okay, simple email that you could draft in three minutes. Hey, uh, lender spoofed, mortgage payoff was swapped out, my escrow officer was tricked, I wired to a fraudulent account, am I covered? And what you're gonna find there is a lot of it depends and yes, but here's the amount that the a sublimit. So you might have two million of ENO or two million of cyber in the aggregate, but you're going to have significantly different sublimits on the amount of cyber crime coverage. Like your wire fraud sublimit right now is typically two hundred and fifty thousand dollars max, and that would include all social engineering. Well, our average fraud recovery that we've had this year is three hundred forty-one thousand. So there's already a deficiency there significantly, and that's per occurrence, right? So the other thing I think we're in for a rude awakening, unfortunately, is I, I see a world where just like title insurance underwriters validate an agency through process and procedure and all these things, I think cyber is going to move more to a privilege, not a right. And I think we're going to see more and more underwriting from the cyber carriers because the loss ratios are too high where we all get put in risk buckets. Look, if I smoke and, and drink and do a bunch of things to my body, I wouldn't expect to get in an A category for life insurance. And these carriers are, are not stupid. They're looking at the same way to say, why are we lumping all of these companies into one bucket when some of them do have a secure framework and others haven't haven't started even the first step on the, the journey of security. So if you can get it, great. Uh, but but I think there's a world in the next 24 months where uh, insurance companies on the cyber side are start are going to start to do audits. And can you talk a little bit more about certified and how it as a tool helps protect real estate transactions? Yeah, um, certified as a tool is is designed to prevent wire fraud. And what it does is it validates the identity of the person that you're dealing with. So for a buyer, making sure the buyer received the wiring instructions, acknowledged them and agreed to follow them and setting them up for success on the transfer of funds, wherever you are in the transaction cycle. I say upfront is absolutely the best as early as you can do that. So in 30 seconds or less, a buyer can go through a very simple flow, has the ability to, to securely receive this information directly to their device, and, and is empowered and, and knowledgeable to trust that and not anything else. And that's the one thing with buyers is you can say, if, 
it doesn't come through certified directly on the screen of your device, you just simply can't trust it. Don't trust a phone call, don't trust an email, don't trust a text message, don't trust an overnight letter. They're starting to do that now. Nothing, carrier pigeon, your kids tell you, nothing. <laughs> don't trust anything except that. And no matter what it's saying or how much pressure there's put against it, you have to reach out before you wire funds, right? So that's the incoming side. And the outgoing side is very similar in the sense that I need to know that Amanda is Amanda is the seller before I wire to her after the closing. And our identity proofing, we have a patent against it, uh, is, is significant. We do device analysis, we make sure the person is the person, we validate the bank credentials, we write that back down to the title production file through our integrations, and we just set the title company up for success by removing callbacks and the secure email, this whole GOAT rodeo that we're doing in the process and procedure, we just automate that whole thing. The other thing is, we actually insure each transfer up to a million dollars through a direct insurance policy that we have at Lloyd's of London. It's the only policy of its type in the country. So each and every customer of Certified is actually named on a policy uh, that they have direct claim access should our system fail and something go wrong. And then not to confuse too much, but we also launched a funds recovery services that should the buyer get tricked even though we did everything we could and you did everything you could and they were set up for success, it was a last minute error on their part or a last minute error internally from, a, from an employee. We have a funds recovery team. Uh, like I said, that's been involved in 52 recoveries uh, for north of $10 million uh, this year alone. So um, as an industry participant, this is the biggest thing that we have to mitigate right now. I think we have a moment in time to, to get it right. And we just want to we want to help enable companies to start on a journey uh, that you know at least as it relates to funds transfers we're taking that risk profile outside the purview of the fraudsters. Tom, is there anything else that you would like to add before we end today's session? No, great discussion, and I just encourage everyone listening to you know start down this path because we I, I like to say we're all going to take a pill in this area. It's going to be an aspirin or a vitamin. And uh, the aspirin is tough. So I'd like to be part of the, the proactive solution uh, to, to help the industry prevent, um, you know, like I say, from experiencing what, what we've had to experience and unfortunately seeing others experience almost on a daily basis. So, uh, but Amanda, thanks for creating awareness on this and a great set of questions. And, you know, want to thank the listeners for tuning in. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. To learn more about Certified, go to Certified.com. That's C-E-R-T-I-F-I-D.com. You'll find more resources to help protect you, your company, and your clients. Thanks again to Tom for joining me today. Title Talks is produced by PropLogix and myself. Original music is by Cole Sando. Original graphics are by Jordan Norris. Until next time, happy closings.